This is an ABC podcast. Sharon Connolly is a filmmaker who grew up in Melbourne. Her grandmother, Elsie, lived in Perth, so she didn't see all that much of her as a kid. When Grandma Elsie did come to visit, she was eccentric and flamboyant in an old-fashioned way, which was a little embarrassing for teenage Sharon because, well, teenagers are like that, aren't they? After Grandma Elsie died, Sharon's dad brought back a case of her belongings from Perth. Looking inside the case, Sharon discovered a lost world, a trove of photographs and documents that revealed the world of showbiz that her grandma Elsie, along with her great-grandmother Mary Agnes and her aunt Gladys, had devoted their lives to. And it was the wild and goofy and charismatic aunt Gladys in particular who really caught Sharon's eye. In the Jazz Age in Australia, Gladys had been a comedian, a musician, a whipcracker and a lady whistler. In fact, Auntie Gladys had once been billed as the world's foremost lady whistler. These women were part of a whole scene in Australia of female comedians, and character actors and male impersonators. They were a sisterhood of jesters, as Sharon calls it, who had a wild old time back in the day. Sharon had almost no idea this had been going on in her family for generations. And the more she looked into it, the more she saw the price these women often paid for the very good time they had, making crowds fall about with laughter through two world wars and a depression. Sharon Connolly's book is called My Giddy Aunt and Her Sister Comedians. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Richard. Tell me about the last time you saw your fabulous grandma, Elsie. I think I had gone to Perth on a business trip and I went to visit her. She was living in a nursing home at that stage in the suburbs of Perth and she would have been in her 80s. Um, and I took a book with me because I wanted to take an offering and it was a book about, it was a very good book actually, about the history of Australian theatre, which I thought she might enjoy because I knew that she had been on the stage. I didn't know very much, but I knew that she'd been a vaudevillian performer with my grandfather, but I didn't really know much more than that, I have to say. So I took a book I thought she might relate to and... Uh, much later, after she died, actually, that book came back to me and I leafed through it and realised that it didn't have anything to say about the sort of popular entertainment in which she worked and, uh, well, nothing about her and um, very little about any of her colleagues. And I, I did wonder how she felt about that. I wished I'd taken flowers. But anyway, that was the last time I saw her. So we didn't talk about much of this at all. We did, I did ask her a few questions at the time about family history because I think I was beginning to be curious and I realised that she was old uh, and that when she went there would be nobody. She had only one child, that was my father, and my father had not grown up with his parents. He grew up with his grandparents while his parents travelled Australia and New Zealand to be on stage everywhere. And so there was little family history that had been passed down and I, I did question her briefly about things like a story I'd long ago heard about the fact that perhaps Connolly wasn't our real family name and where, in fact, had that come from. <laughs> um, it was a very brief conversation, but it gave me a few clues, fortunately, <laughs> that I was later able to follow up. When she came to visit you when you were a kid, on those visits, what picture do you have in your head of her? It was very rare. Um, I remember she smoked cigarettes, which was a bit transgressive in our household. She had a hairnet. <laughs> she would sing little songs to herself as she wandered around the house. And I remember being embarrassed by this, actually, you know, this, this sort of singing, humming, smoking grandmother who wasn't at all like my other grandmother, who was indeed also a very transgressive person in her own way, my mother's mother, Grandma Elsie sort of lacked a certain self-containment, I suppose. So after Grandma Elsie died, tell me about this case that your father brought home of her stuff. Well, it was, a, it was not a very big case. It was a black case. I think it probably had once had a zither in it, so it was quite a flat thing, shallow. But it had a remarkable number of black and white photographs, not of the kind you'd normally find in a family collection of photos. They weren't sort of christenings and weddings and so on. They were mainly publicity shots of a whole bunch of people, few of whom I could recognise. 
in sort of, I hate to use the word, but zany kind of postures, um, performing for the camera. They were obviously publicity shots. Few of them were identified, so nobody had scribbled on the back what they were. And there were some shots that went back before the 20s, back to an earlier age, maybe around the turn of the the 20th century, of uh, people quite young who were dressed up in all sorts of outlandish costumes, performing in front of backdrops that had been unfurled outside, I think, because there were dirt floors clearly visible in these photographs. And I wasn't quite sure who they were either. And then there was another album full of 19th century portraits of a much more classic kind, but nothing to indicate who they were. So my brother and I opened up this case of photographs not long after Dad brought them home. It was at Christmas Day. And my brother, who was himself a musician, and I looked at each other when we saw these photographs and... Uh, I always remember Steve saying, I want what they're having. (laughs) (laughs) They look amazing in some of those photos. You've got one of them printed in your book of a band that your auntie and your grandfather was a member of called the Syncopating Jesters. And they're a jazz band from the 20s, but, you know, sometimes those old photos of jazz bands, they look rather formal. They're all sitting upright and respectable. Not this pic. They're all loose-limbed. They look like they've had a drink before the photo and they've got beautiful clothes. They're immaculately groomed. And at the back, there's this woman with what looks like a like a, a mallet for a gong or a drumstick or something. That was your Auntie Gladys, wasn't it? That's correct. Steve might have been interested in what they were having. I was fascinated by her. There she was, the only woman on this sort of uh, stage full of blokes. And somehow your eyes, I mean, partly because she had the white dress on and all the others were in dark colours, but your eyes just went to her. And I was a bit fascinated about that. My father was still alive at the time and he he identified her as his Aunt Gladys, but he didn't know much about her and, in fact, he knew nothing about her. We'd never heard of her until that point. So she was the one who, who hooked me, I suppose. I needed to find out who she was, what she'd done, and that's what started the whole search. If I had met her at a party, I think I would have gravitated straight to her because she looks like fun. She looked like she'd make me laugh. She just there's there's some kind of charisma there. It indicates that if you met her socially, she'd be great fun to be with. Did you see that in her? Oh, I think she was pretty outrageous. It didn't take me long to discover that she did all sorts of things women of her time were not supposed to do, including going off at quite a tender age and travelling around with various theatrical troops including whistling. Whistling wasn't something that women did. Um, uh, There's an old proverb that I read somewhere that that says something like, a whistling girl and a crowing hen is loved by neither God nor men. (laughs) But she was loved for her whistling. She was uh, described as a a siffleur. That was a thing back in the day, wasn't it? Whistlers, and indeed, in, in your Auntie Gladys's case, a lady whistler, this was a whole sort of part of popular entertainment back in the day. That's right. Some of the first recordings made actually were of whistlers in the US, but women whistlers were less common and there had been some before my great-aunt Gladys. There was um, Daisy Merritt, who later achieved considerable notoriety as the partner of Nat Phillips, otherwise known as Stiffy, of Stiffy and Mo fame. But Daisy had been, even before she met Nat, Daisy was a whistler herself. She wasn't the only one. There was another Daisy called Daisy Chard who in the early 1900s was quite well known as a whistler. In fact, I believe on the West Australian goldfields a tin whistle was referred to as a Daisy Chard. But it was unusual. It was unusual. And the thing that struck me when I started to read about her her whistling performances was that she whistled everything from the national anthems of many countries <laughs> to ragtime. <laughs> Do you know anything about her technique? Would she just stand there and purse her lips or would she stick two fingers in her mouth? How would she do that? Both, I believe. Um, Of the very few relatives I I found in my research, I did find one shortly before he died, sadly, who did remember as a child, he remembered Gladys, who was getting to the end of her whistling days by then, but he recalled that they'd been on a holiday with her once and they'd arrived at a holiday house to see the milkman disappearing around the corner in front of them and they needed some milk and Gladys apparently put her fingers in her mouth and let rip and uh, to the horror of his very genteel mother. 
Um, <laughs> so she could do that, but right. she. But I, I doubt that that was her stage technique. Uh, I must admit, I've tried, but I can't whistle at all. I, I'm, I'm no credit to my great aunt, so I have no idea really about whistling technique. Well, there's a challenge for you now, Sharon, isn't there, now that you've done the book? There is. But I do know this, that it must have been loud, because when I visited some of the theatres in which she whistled... Um, they were very large places without amplification. So she was performing and whistling before there was proper amplification and her whistle was loud enough to go a long way, right up to the gods. So this sent you on an exhaustive search through old, old newspaper archives through Australia and this takes us right to the start of your family's generations of entertainers and it goes back a generation from Gladys with your great-grandmother, a woman named Mary Agnes Connolly, and she was one of the figures you found in that photo album of Victorian formal photo portraits. Mary Agnes, your great-grandmother, tell me what you know about how she made the leap from respectable middle-class Australian society in the late Victorian era into the wacky world of showbiz. Well, that's an interesting story. Mary Agnes married and had two children before she appeared on stage... Uh, in about 1892 is her first recorded appearance. She was kind of a, from a respectable middle-class Sydney family. There were two daughters. She was one of them. And she, I don't know how, but developed a, a yearning to be on stage. I suspect she had a desire for a more independent and public life than was really on offer to girls of her kind at the time. And theatre and performance was one of the few ways in which they could live a more public life. It's a bit of a scandalous story, which is probably why it didn't get handed down through the family, so I had to unearth it myself. Um, And I found in divorce records in the New South Wales State Archives some letters that she'd written that were tended as evidence in divorce proceedings brought by her husband because Mary Agnes had run away with a much younger man But even before she'd run away with the much younger man, she was already upsetting her husband by appearing on stage. She called herself Claire Del Mar. Wow. I don't know that it was the most appropriate name. She she looks to me to be rather more earthy than the name Claire Del Mar suggests. Nonetheless, she was Claire Del Mar and she appeared at the, the Sydney School of Arts for the first time in 1892... She was called a burlesque artist, which is not the um, definition. Not, not Burlesque is not what we've been led to believe it is today. But it wasn't a saucy. It wasn't a striptease. Right, right, OK. <laughs> and, uh, it, but it was, it was a musical thing and uh, burlesque artists often parodied more serious dramatic works and I think she did all of that. I don't know how successfully. I think she was trying to launch herself into a stage career in the 1890s when economic times were pretty tough. So the problems of getting her theatrical career off the ground combined with the fact that she left her husband for Gerald Shaw meant that she ended up fleeing the country to New Zealand in about 1895. And uh, there she had two more children who were my great-aunt Gladys and my grandfather Keith, respectively. So so she had two kids with this Gerald Shaw, Mm. but they took the name Connolly, which is the name of the husband she left behind. What's, what was going on there? I think legally her children, because she was, when she had them, still married to Edward Connolly, I think that uh, the children were legally to be called Connolly. They did, however, spend most of their youth using the name Shaw, which was the nom de plume taken by their actual biological father, who wasn't, in fact, Gerald Shaw at all himself. Oh, he it's wasn't? It's a very complicated story <laughs> in terms of names. What kind of... <laughs> how many names... Did, do we know how many names Gerald Shaw employed in the course of his life? Oh, mostly two. He was originally... He was Harry Morwood Thompson was his name as christened, and he took the name Gerald Shaw at some point even before he met my great-grandmother. What kind of a man was this Gerald Shaw? He was a complete scoundrel. <laughs> um, I, th- I suspect he was he was a charming con man. He was very handsome, or so the pictures indicate, and I think he had quite a commanding presence. He was also a relentless and very good self-promoter. And uh, unfortunately, he had some bad habits. Um, he was a bit of a gambler. 
my grandfather reported much later that, you know, he'd go without food to play poker. Indeed, said my grandfather, the rest of us would go without food too when he played poker. He gambled on mining. He was always coming up with scams. You know, he found gold where there was none. He clearly was a good liar. In fact, I think there's a newspaper report somewhere that says that he would have bitten Baron Munchausen in the lying stakes. So there they are in New Zealand, your great-grandmother Mary Agnes and the so-called Gerald Shaw and their two kids. And the oldest of those kids is Gladys, your auntie Gladys that you saw in the pictures who so caught your eye, and your grandfather, Keith. Now, I, I note here at the time that on stage they're all performing together, but there's also a blackface comedian and, intriguingly, a Japanese contortionist named Kadami. Blackface entertainment in Australia. Like, we, we weren't the United States where there was widespread, you know, had been slavery and segregation of African-American people. Was blackface a real thing in those years in Australian entertainment? Absolutely. I think in Australia and New Zealand, um, it was brought here by travelling American uh, entertainers who taught Australians and New Zealanders about minstrelsy and uh, we mimicked it. So I think it's possible, though I don't have evidence of this, that Gladys's first performance, when she was only about five, she probably was in blackface herself. So, yes, vaudeville itself kind of comes out of that tradition of minstrelsy brought to Australia by Americans, but enthusiastically adopted, I'd have to say, here. God, that's so strange. On the one hand, they're, they're so, these performers are so quick to adopt all the kind of cultural innovations of of black America, of jazz and everything else, and then at the same time put on this stupid makeup and mock them as primitives and idiots on stage. It's pretty ghastly, isn't it? It's ghastly and, and it's terrible and it's quite confronting to read about, actually, but important to know about, I think. It's also full of paradoxes. So whilst there was this horrible tradition of blackface and this kind of ridiculing, uh, uh, using black people, supposedly African-Americans, as the source of a sort of belittling kind of humour. There was also an imitation of their traditions. So the music was sophisticated and syncopated and much admired. At the same time, it was developed, if you like, by black people who were otherwise on stage being belittled. It's, it's a confusing and complicated scenario and one which bears some more thought, I think, because, you know, these are the cultural origins of white Australia at, at any rate. You've got a review of the family's performance in Mount Gambia. Mary Agnes and her husband Gerald Shaw are performing on stage... I'm just going to quote it here. It's a wonderful review. Mr Shaw's songs were all encored, the audience enthusiastically joining in the choruses. The sentimental songs of Madame Shaw were much appreciated. Mahatma the Lady Boxer was also in evidence, and the male audience were not slow to realise that they in the future might have to submit in a muscular way to petticoat rule. Now, is that a bit of an allusion to the pressure that was in Australia at the time to grant women suffrage, to allow women the vote? Oh, I think so. I think there was a lot of discussion about the new woman and there was a lot of ridiculing of the new woman and clearly a lot of people were threatened by her. The new woman was essentially um, the, the woman who wanted a job and a vote. So, yeah, I think that was all part of the, the, the sort of debate at the time about women's status in society and where they were. I mean, the night that Gladys, my great-aunt, was born in New Zealand... Her father, my great-grandfather, was performing in a review called The New Woman, which I'm sure was probably sending up the feminist of the day. They ran a theatre for a while in Perth with little Gladys, the child wonder, as she was billed, and your grandfather Keith as well. Was that the only life that Gladys and your grandfather Keith knew, was showbiz? Pretty much, yeah. They, they were relentlessly on the move. Like many of those showbiz families in the early 20th century, they travelled constantly. Before there were aeroplanes, before railway connected the continent, they were constantly on ships and God knows what, getting themselves from, you know, Tasmania to the desert country or the southwest of Western Australia. So they saw a lot of Australia, yeah. And then, after a while, in Perth, their father, Gerald Shaw, the scoundrel, just disappeared. 
Where did he go? Do you have any idea of where he went? Uh, well, he disappeared beyond the rabbit-proof fence. Uh, he had a, he had a series of mining leases, and presumably he disappeared into one of those. But eventually he left Western Australia, where he, he Mary Agnes remained for quite some time. He left, and when I tracked him down through the records, he had actually married, as he had never married my great-grandmother. He, he'd married and had three more children. Uh, he died in the 1920s, so after that the, uh, the trail ran cold, <laughs> and so did Gerald. So as Gladys got older, she joined Nat Phillips' Stiffy and Mo Review with Nat Phillips and Mo McKacky, the legendary Roy Reen Mo McKacky. Tell me a bit about Stiffy and Mo, what you know, what you know about them. Well, Stiffy and Mo, they were larrikins. Roy Reen was uh, a performer in the great tradition of Yiddish comedians, in a way. They were Jewish comedians who kind of sent up their own kind, really. They exaggerated supposedly Jewish trays and had quite a distinctive sort of Jewish Australian accent, I guess, in, in Australia at any rate. But Nat Phillips, he played a rabbito, Stiffy the rabbito, and there's some debate about whether that was because he was playing a man who went from door to door selling rabbits or whether it had something to do with South Sydney. Maybe both. Um, you know, he, he himself could be a very funny person. So then Gladys came into her own... Your great-aunt Gladys came into her own in the 1920s, the jazz age, the, the age of the flapper. It seemed like she was in the right place at the right time for her in many ways. How much did she throw herself into that, into the spirit of the age? of the Rather too much, I suspect. Too much. <laughs> if you look at the photos, she looks a bit worn about that time. Well, in the 20s, Gladys performed with Stiffy and Moe. So she, she got her big break through Stiffy and Moe, who made her the leading character comedian in their company, which was the most successful company in Australia, in Australia at the time. I mean, it's kind of important to recognise that Vaudeville was the major public entertainment, popular entertainment of its day. This was what you did. You went out and paid not very much money to go and see a show that would have individual acts, variety acts, and it would often also have, in the second half of the program, a thing called a review or sometimes uh, something that may have been a peculiarly Australian phenomenon, a reviewsical which was um, a number of sort of individual acts but organised into a crude kind of plot. Stiffy and Moe were particularly famous for these reviewsicles. And my great-aunt Gladys ended up playing in many, many of these, usually in pretty sort of stereotypical female roles. So she would be a servant girl or a, a society matron or an old maid even. Um, but it was a big break for Gladys to become that leading player in Stiffy and Moe's company for around about three years. So she was successful and I think that suited her as much as being a flapper did. I guess the flapper thing for her took off when she joined my grandfather's band, which was called Keith Connolly's Syncopating Jesters, a band in which she whistled and danced and sang and played the saxophone even in the end. She was playing the part of being a good time girl or a, a flapper. In reality, she was actually a bit old, older than the flapper. She was probably about 30 when she was doing this. And so, you know, flappers were kind of by definition young. But Gladys never had much of a problem with that. She typically understated her age, often by, you know, anything up to 14 years. How much of a scene was there of women comedic entertainers at the time? Like, there's photos in your book that suggest there were more than quite a few... Oh, there were stacks of them. I, I mean, I think it was a big industry. You know, there were thousands of entertainers roaming the country in the first two to three decades of the 20th century, and many, many of them were women, and they did many, many different things. There were loads of these people who I was completely unaware of. I mean, I grew up kind of believing, I suppose, that, you know, prior to the 1970s, most women lived pretty settled domestic private lives, but no, I was wrong. Here were these women really out there doing things that were quite outrageous in, in many ways. And they included people who I really was surprised to come across, you know, people like male impersonators who I didn't know existed. And they were quite famous acts. There was a fabulous 
uh, West Australian woman known as Effie Fellows. She also performed under the names Bobby Folson and Freddie Manners, I think. And she was very good at what she did. And she, in fact, went to the US at one point and performed with Al Jolson and Stan Laurel and Sophie Tucker. But she came back to Australia eventually. In fact, I believe that toward the end of her life, she was still performing in aged care homes in Perth, singing a, a song that became her signature tune, I've Never Seen a Straight Banana. Um, uh, but, but you know, Effie dressed... <laughs> is that as smutty as I think it is? I don't know. I think so. Right, okay. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, there, were, there were other male impersonators too. There was a, a well-known woman in pantomime called Nellie Cole, but perhaps my favourite is Nellie Small, who I can't believe isn't, isn't a, a national heroine. Um, Nellie Small was born in Sydney to West Indian parents... So she was often mistakenly referred to as an African-American, but she was indeed Australian. And she dressed as a man off stage and on for her entire life. She was, again, a very accomplished cabaret variety singer and much admired even today by people who, you know, recall that she was there right up until the beginnings of rock and roll in Australia, really. She was singing Cab Calloway songs in Sydney nightclubs in the early 1950s. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So now we go to Elsie, your your grandmother, who met your grandfather, Keith, who was Gladys's brother. Tell me a bit about her background, Elsie, what you found out about her. Mm. Elsie was one of two daughters. Um, she was born in the early 1900s in Perth and she was one of two daughters born to a man called Andy Hosking who was a sort of Perth identity. He'd been a footballer and he held down a day job, I think, at the Gas and Fuel Corporation whilst running theatres around town. So Elsie became a child performer in Perth during the First War. She was sometimes called Perth's little idol and she sang on stage and danced a bit and uh, raised money often for war-related charities. So I think she probably met my grandfather on one of the stages that her father managed. My grandfather, Keith Connolly, had returned from the war and was, by the early 1920s, a performer around Australia, but he did a number of seasons in Perth where he may have met Elsie, my grandmother. She was a really different performer to someone like Gladys, whereas Gladys is a kind of goofy comedian and sort of multi-talented person. It seems Elsie was... She's more like a, I don't know, a gammon or one of those kind of a, a sweetheart-type singers of the time. Absolutely. I think the time suited her in the sense that after the war and into the Depression, there was a kind of a desire for sweet, sentimental, optimistic songs and they were her specialty. She was... She was well known as a singer of those. Uh, she was also quite an accomplished dancer and she also uh, acted in various sketch comedy review things. So she, again, was multi-talented, though she probably wasn't quite as out there as my great-aunt. Elsie also performed with, you know, the greats like Roy Reen and Nat Phillips, actually. In fact, she was working with Nat Phillips in Sydney when she premiered a song at what was called the Grand Opera House in Sydney, a song written by none other than Don Bradman. Don Bradman wrote a song? Don Bradman wrote several songs, I think, but this was one of them. It was called Every Day's a Rainbow Day for Me. Um, <laughs> the year was 1931. And so, you know, Australia, like many places, was in the grip of the Great Depression and this was, you know, one of the optimistic songs that people sang in hard times. And Elsie did it to great applause at the Grand Opera House. In fact, I'm told that the West Indian, the first ever West Indian cricket team to visit Australia was in the audience when she sang it. And then when Bradman appeared on stage to thank her for premiering his song, he gave her a box of chocolates, I believe. The crowd went wild. And then suddenly the talkies arrived. The talking, first major talking movie, which was The Jazz Singer, with Al Jolson, arrived in 1928. What kind of an effect did that have on that vast, thriving, vaudeville scene that we had in Australia? It's often said the talkies killed vaudeville. I, I don't think the, the story's quite as simple as that. 
the talkies took some time to reach all corners of the country, so it took quite a long time for uh, the technology to be installed in all the cinemas in the land so that they too could show talking pictures. And during that time, many vaudevillian performers began to leave the big cities and this period saw the emergence of big tent shows, um, George Sawley's tent show being probably the best known of them. And these were kind of travelling tent shows that, particularly up and down the east coast of Australia, did very well. They were very well known and a lot of very well-known performers worked with them and they would tour the country show circuits. Um, I think the other thing that happened was theatres, live theatres, became cinemas. So that's one of the things that happened to my great-aunt Gladys. She was performing with a company called The League of Notions at, <laughs> at the Fuller's Company Theatre in Castlereagh Street in Sydney. And early in the run of that show, the Fuller's proprietors actually closed the theatre for live entertainment, converted it to cinema. It's a little heartbreaking, Sharon. Like You mentioned that in your book, that that moment when Gladys was performing with her group, The League of Notions, at that last night of vaudeville at Fuller's Theatre in Sydney before it's about to be converted into a cinema. There's a concert there. And they seem to sense that the good old days have gone, like this is the end of something. The Great Depression has just arrived. It's 1930. There's, it seems like they, they were aware of what was going on and that they might not have much more of a future. I, I think it was a very anxious time for those performers. They, I think the vaudeville industry lost a lot of performers at the time. They either left the industry, some committed suicide, terrible things happened. For some of the more established performers, like those in my family, they continued to earn their living from entertainment. However, you know, my great uncle, Gladys's brother, Jerry, became a, a very well-known radio announcer, mainly in Brisbane, also in Sydney. So some people were able to transfer to radio, which was a technology that was getting more and more established at the, at the same time as the arrival of the talkies. It wasn't so great probably for many of the women and it probably wasn't really terrific for somebody like great-aunt Gladys who whistled, which might have been thought a bit piercing on the radio. Um, and also, of course, Gladys relied on facial expression and mugging, which wasn't obviously the kind of talents that radio required. Yeah, but she would have been perfect for the movies, but at the same time, the movie industry in Australia was dying too. It seemed like all their options are being cut off bit by that, bit. That's absolutely true. I think that's the tragedy. At the same time as the talkies arrive, the Australian film industry, which has been under great pressure for some years because of massive importation of overseas film product, and also American large distributors would lock up cinemas in Australia so that cinema proprietors had to exhibit packages of American product and it, it squeezed Australian film out of Australian cinemas and uh, what had been a pioneering film industry in this country was all but gone really by the, the time the depression hit and sort of limped along but fairly obscurely and really wasn't revived until the 1970s. So the opportunities for actors like Gladys and others to appear in Australian films were, were almost non-existent. Then we come to the, the flip side of all this joie de vivre that's there in your showbiz family, which is this tragic history of mental illness. We have Mary Agnes, the woman who was the first to jump ship from respectable society to join showbiz world. Tell me about her last years, Sharon. Um, Mary Agnes... Mary Agnes was fortunate, actually, in her 60s to be able finally to inherit some money from her mother a woman called Mary Gertrude, who herself had been consigned to an institution at the age of 46, I think. She ended up in Callan Park in Roselle in Sydney for a while, didn't she? That's correct. She was at Gladesville, then Callan Park and then Rydalmere. She spent 43 years in the mental institutions of New South Wales. 43 years? And her inheritance, which was significant was controlled for her in a sort of guardianship arrangement by an official called the Master in Lunacy. The Master in Lunacy? This was an official position? Correct. He was, a, he was a state guardian appointed to make sure that the assets of people declared insane 
weren't filched, I guess, by their relatives. Oh, like the public trustees, something like that, but for people who have mental A bit like that, like a that. bit like that. Well, th- this meant, however, that her fortune was locked up and unavailable to her children, like Mary Agnes, who could have done with some of it. Anyway, after 43 years in the mental institutions of New South Wales, Mary Gertrude finally died and Mary Agnes inherited some money from her mother and bought herself a little cottage in Rosebury. And there she stayed while her children kind of continued their peripatetic adventures around the country. I think she got lonely. I think she was, after many, many years of living in kind of sociable theatrical boarding houses, she found it difficult to cope with the isolation of suburban life on her own in a house in Sydney. And she became depressed and was eventually taken to hospital herself and, in a horrific story really, ended up being committed to Gladesville where her own mother had been committed. And she died there from pneumonia about a year later at the age of around about 66. So then that brings us to your dad, Keith the Younger. What was his early life like with Elsie and Keith travelling all the time and being on the stage? Um, At about the age of... Just before he had to go to school, I expect... Dad was um, taken to Perth uh, where he grew up with his grandparents, my grandmother's parents, Andy Hosking, the theatrical manager, and his wife, Ethel, or Eth as she was known. And I think Dad had a pretty good upbringing there, actually. I think that worked out for him in many ways. He saw his parents. They were often in Perth performing and often his mother would come and stay for quite some time. But Dad had a pretty classic sort of upbringing in the inner suburbs of Perth in the 30s and 40s. I think actually Dad's life possibly was much more settled and and he probably did better than he might have done had he been on the road all the time. After the Second World War, your grandfather and grandmother, Keith and Elsie, they came back to settle in Perth. They were getting older, but they were still very appealing people. Like, they're very good-looking people in those photos. What state, though, was Elsie in when she settled back in Perth? Mm, Elsie, I think, may have had some mental health problems for most of her life, but they manifested much more as she grew older. And in her 40s, she was, you know, in the grip of what we now recognise as quite a serious anxiety disorder, which saw her end up in hospital a number of times. And finally, in the early 1950s, it was suggested that she should have a lobotomy to treat her anxiety disorder. And she didn't want to have it. It's quite clear from the medical records that she didn't like that idea at all, but eventually became convinced that that was the best thing to do. And so in the early 1950s, my grandmother, who had, toward the latter part of her stage career, been known as Sunny Day, that was her stage name, she underwent a lobotomy which... It did help to alleviate her symptoms in some ways, but I think it may have blunted her personality in others, and so I don't think she ever used the stage name Sunny Day again. Was that like for you to see that, that that had happened to your grandmother, that lobotomy had been put to her, that she'd resisted and then acceded to over over time? What was that like for you, Sharon, to see that? Oh, I was terribly shocked, and in fact I was quite distressed when I found the medical records. They were were sort of gut-wrenching, really, to know that this very lively woman and talented woman and intelligent woman was kind of the victim of understandings and approaches to the treatment of mental illness that affected women much more deleteriously than they affected men, I think. There were many, many more women, it seems, who were subjected to lobotomies than men all around the world, not just in Australia. Look, it should be said that, you know, these things were not so well understood at the time and that there weren't many effective treatments and that no doubt psychiatrists at the time were struggling to find ways to help their patients. Lobotomy, psychosurgery was one of those new techniques. I think it was rather too enthusiastically administered, perhaps, and a lot of people suffered as a result. She had taken that name, Sunny Day, as you say, and all the photos of her, she's very winsome and she's trying to appear as appealingly girlish as possible. I'm sure that takes its toll. That kind of compulsory cheerfulness that needs to be there all the time, you know, from a young age she'd been a performer. What do you think about that, Sharon? I think one of the things that took 
its toll on all of the women in this story, actually, was um, the requirement to be girlish. You could kind of get away with it if you were youthful looking, as my grandmother and my great aunt were. They were often builders' girls. They were personality girls. It girls was the term of the time, you know, a term first applied to the famous Clara Bow. But my great aunt Gladys was being called an it girl when she was about 40. They went on being girlish way too long and then when finally they couldn't kind of keep up the act anymore because they were indeed middle-aged, they were pretty brutally made redundant. Now, I think that's an incredibly difficult thing to deal with for anybody, but for people whose lives are dependent on being acknowledged and visible and public... They were not only rendered redundant, but they were rendered invisible. And I think that was a kind of rejection that probably took its toll on all of them. They must have known that day was coming, though. I mean, surely they would have known that day was coming when they couldn't carry that off anymore. Showbiz is cruel. I mean, I suppose that would have been hanging in front of her all her life if she thought about it, or maybe she just lived day to day and that was the appeal of being in showbiz. We don't know, I suppose. I guess she did, and I guess the trouble for her was that the things that she might have fallen back on once her stage life was over also vanished at about the same time. So, uh, you know, she was distant from my father, her only child, because by then he lived in Melbourne, she lived in Perth. She'd not been that involved in his upbringing anyway, so there was a kind of distance between them that foisted upon them from, from early on. So in a time when in the 50s when women's role was again returned to the domestic sphere in a sense. She didn't have that with her son and her grandchildren like me. And the other thing also was she was living with a husband, my grandfather Keith, who was very damaged mainly by his experiences in World War I, I suspect. He, he had gone to war at the age of 18. He was in the tunnelers. Some people will know about the tunnellers from the terrific film Beneath Hill 60. Was he at Hill 60? Yes, he was. And he was also at the Battle of the Menin Road. So my grandfather had spent three years on the Western Front and it's hard to believe that he wasn't profoundly affected and indeed probably traumatised by that experience. And one of the poignant things for me that I came across was an interview he'd done Uh, in Perth in the early 1920s when he said something like, the management doesn't pay me to make people cry, you know, so I'll make them laugh instead, or words to that effect. And that brings us to your great-aunt Gladys, the comedian, the whistler, the saxophonist. How did her act change as she got older? Well, Gladys Gladys had more lives than a cat, really. She, She kept adapting to whatever the latest fashions were, I thought that she probably was finished as Vaudible sort of petered out until I spoke on the phone one day to her nephew, a man I never met because sadly he died before I could. But he said to me, I remember Gladys, she had a whip-cracking act. And I thought, I've never heard of that. There were certainly no pictures in the case that showed Gladys with whips. Anyway, it was a trail, it was a clue, if you like, that led me to discover that for some years she and a woman called Jean Cracknell had had a duo that became known as the Arizona Girls and adds whip-cracking and possibly sharpshooting to her many talents. Jean was extraordinary. Jean was a really good shot. You know, she could she could fire a gun backwards with the aid of a mirror and hit, you know, extinguish a candle. She was she was extraordinary. <laughs> I've always wanted to be able to do that. <laughs> so have I. Well, I don't know whether Gladys got quite that good, but Gladys also did learn a bit of sharpshooting. She could whip crack and she was the whistling cowgirl of the pair and they had a sort of performing Pomeranian dog called Goldie as well. Well, she was a hell of a woman. What were her last years like, though, in the 1950s? Uh, Well, a bit sad, really. Gladys had married somewhere along the line in the early 30s, but I'm not sure what kind of a marriage it was. She was divorced by the early 40s, and she kept performing throughout her marriage, so it didn't seem to tie her down too much. She didn't have any children. Anyway, she divorced in her early 40s. She kept performing for a while. But, look, I think the real nail in the coffin for vaudeville was probably the Second War because petrol rationing was introduced and unnecessary travel was discouraged and it meant that those performers 
who'd perhaps left city stages and taken to the tent shows to find their audiences were no longer so mobile. And I think that was probably the end of Gladys's career, really. And so, unfortunately, the next records I found of her were of her admission to Morissette Hospital, which is an institution not far from Newcastle in New South Wales for the treatment of mental illness. And Gladys was compulsorily confined there under what was called the Inebriates Act for 12 months um, because of her drinking problem. That is four women in your family who had been admitted to mental institutions, asylums as they once were, that you discovered there. There's Mary Gertrude and her daughter Mary Agnes. There's Elsie, your grandmother, and then there's great-aunt Gladys as well. You must have been really shocked to find that out, all that uh, out. Well, I was, particularly as they weren't all related by blood. So no. any suggestion that these were genetic issues, and in fact study of the records shows that they all suffered from completely different illnesses. So, so the genetic component is probably insignificant. It made me think a lot and read quite widely, I have to say, about women and mental illness. And uh, I think it's fair to say that women who were different in some way, and they were all different in some way because they were not bound by the conventions of the time in relation to how women should live and behave, women who were different were much more likely to be diagnosed with some sort of mental illness that required them to be confined or treated in what I regard as fairly brutal ways. It seems before she died, though, Gladys settled in Perth after she got out of Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. She settled down in Perth with a man, and you've got a name for him, Chilman, I think. Now, who do you surmise, who do you hope that might have been? I hope it was the same person called Wilbur who had sent her his photos back in 1915, shortly before he went to war. I've never been able to prove it, but it's possible. And it was a fantasy I like to entertain because by the end of my research into Gladys's life, I'd grown very fond of her. And I wanted her to have some happier times, I guess, after coming out of Morissette. So when I found that she was with a fellow called Chilman, I, I tried to find him. I found, I did find someone called Chilman and he had been in parts of Western Australia at the same time as Gladys had been before the First World War and he had indeed gone to the First World War and returned about the time that she left Western Australia to forge her career on the eastern seaboard. So maybe this man Chilman was in fact the very handsome young man called Wilbur who had sent her his photographs from various mining settlements in Western Australia before he'd gone to war. Maybe we can just wish this fantasy on her. Maybe it wasn't a fantasy, maybe it is, but maybe we just wished that for her. Well, I certainly wished it for her. She didn't have very long to live after that. She died of a a stroke at the age of 65. And so I, I really sincerely do hope that she had some more fun, some more lights and laughter, as she would have called it, before she died. Have you found any recordings of great-aunt Gladys or your grandma Elsie performing? Is there any record extant that you know of of them performing, singing, whistling, whatever? Not as far as I've been able to find. I wouldn't go so far as to say they're definitely not there, but I doubt that there are recordings of my great-aunt Gladys. She didn't appear on radio as much as my grandparents did. And when she did appear on radio, it was also in a time before recording technology had much developed. So I suspect that not much exists in relation to Gladys. I do think, however, there probably are radio plays that my grandmother performed in. I haven't been able to find them. I had some dealings with ABC archives, but I appreciate that there's that's a difficult task to unearth old radio plays recorded in Adelaide and Perth in the early 1950s. Just finally, Sharon, I'm struck by this odd paradox with the history of Australian women in comedy. Australia is one of the hardest places for women comics to work in the English-speaking world. And despite that, or perhaps even because of it, who knows, we have this long tradition that goes back even further than I imagined after reading your book of brilliant, outstanding women comedians. What do you make of that paradox, Sharon? Uh, I think that... 
women comedians have always been there. I mean, they're not just on the stage. There are plenty of funny women in life. And I guess women have different experiences to draw on for their humour. And in popular entertainment, their audiences comprise a fair number of women who respond to what women have to say about their lives. So I don't think it's unusual that there are a lot of them. In terms of comparisons with elsewhere, I'm not so sure. I think that it's a very hard thing to be a performing artist in Australia, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, And, of course, everything is harder for women who tend to be sort of not in positions of authority and decision-making positions in relation to what goes on stage and when and who gets the higher profile and so on. But I think Australia is a really hard place to be an artist and particularly a performing artist. Um, And that has to do with the fact that so much of our culture is imported. And I, I should say here, except for obviously First Nations culture, which you know, has a different and long tradition and First Nations people in Australia have a respect for culture, which I think is kind of lacking in white society. We tend to admire the artists who make it overseas, the artists who go to Hollywood, for example, and we tend not to have the same sort of regard for artists who entertain us here at home and may never leave our shores for various reasons, personal and otherwise, but who stay here and continue the the hard and often very thankless work of being a performer on stage. And as you say, being a woman performer on an Australian stage is perhaps even more thankless. What a pleasure it is to speak with you, Sharon, and thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard. It was terrific to talk. Sharon Connolly's book is called My Giddy Aunt and Her Sister Comedians. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.